to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 57 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Let's see when... We left off with episode 56, which I think I recorded like three weeks ago. Uh, not too much has been going on. Um, just been working my shift at the arcade, you know, having some fun there. Um, my girlfriend's been in the hospital uh, two, twice over the last three weeks, and um, she's in the hospital now, but she's coming home tomorrow, so... You know, things should be getting back to normal. Um, uh, the decluttering of my place, which I've lived in for 18 years, continues. Uh, this Sunday, I'm going to be tackling the kitchen. And then in the following week, I'm probably going to do the bathroom and the second room. And then uh, probably... The next two Sundays after that are going to be the living room and the uh, master bedroom, which need decluttering the most. So, you know, I'm trying to get everything squared away and get everything set, because as soon as I get the decluttering done, the packing begins. Uh, We have to be ready to roll out of here by September 7th, and we shall see where it goes from there. Uh, let's see, uh, gaming-wise, I've been just doing the regular thing, playing Division 2, enjoying watching several streamers like, uh, Praetorian117, and Mixie Girl and Quad God, you know, watching them play, picking up tips, um, Tony X is another one who I enjoy watching, um, he is, a, he's really funny, I really, I really like watching his stream. Uh, weekdays um, during the mid-mornings going into mid-afternoons. That's when he streams. Um, let's see, you know, still watching, you know, the old standbys, Buana, Jack Danger, that kind of thing. Um, also watching uh, guys like um, DK Mikey, who is a uh, really good Donkey Kong player. Charlie Farr, who's another one. Um, and these guys with their, you know, tips and tricks on, you know, playing it and, you know, I'll sit and watch them for a little while and just the usual thing, nothing too crazy. Um, let's see, eh, not too much going on, uh, gaming wise aside from that, you know, when I have a little bit of time, um, I go up to the arcade in Brighton an hour before my shift, like always, and play some games. Um, I played a, a decent game of Time Pilot uh, last Saturday. I got close to 300,000, which is good. Um, you know, still rocking it with Asteroids. Now I'm averaging like 30,000 points a game, which is actually really good. Considering, you know, my advanced years as far as being a gamer goes. But anyway, um, so yeah, I've done a check of uh, emails and voicemails and on the various uh, social media platforms, and nothing's out there. So, once again, uh, if you have any thoughts or questions about anything I've discussed so far, um, and is there a game that you would like me to cover, um, and if I haven't played it, I will certainly check it out and get back to you immediately. 
get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. As I mentioned, I have a fairly strong uh, social media presence. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. On Facebook, just make a search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. If you do a search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, that opens up the discussion group where I need to post another question. Uh, I will do that right after I finish recording. Uh, let's see. On Instagram, I am Arcade Addict Brian. Um, Facebook and Instagram are the two places I'm at the most. So if you want to, you can DM me on Instagram. And if you want to message me on Facebook, uh, I will read it and I will certainly uh, read the question on uh, the next recording of the, uh, an episode. Rest assured. Um, let's see. On Twitter, I am arcade addict underscore B, and Twitter is tumblr.com slash confessions of an arcade addict. So, once again, multiple ways of getting hold of the show. And if you're so inclined, please do so. I'm here for you. All right. This is going to be a fairly short show, although there are a couple of topics near and dear to my heart, one in particular. So, you know what? Let's just get right on to it. And that segment is Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Hobie, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my head or chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Treasure of Tarman for the Intellivision. Oh, yeah. This game, this game, this game, this game. Um, yeah, this is probably my favorite Intellivision game out of all of them, and there are some really good ones for the Intellivision, but I think this one takes the cake, candles and all. Um, I played it a lot in the 80s, as you'll hear in my little, uh, experience, uh, description, once I get done with all the information, which is on Wikipedia, and let's get right to it, shall we? Okay. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Treasure of Tarman is a video game for the Intellivision video game console and the Mattel Aquarius computer system. The game was a licensed Dungeons & Dragons adaptation. Uh, in Treasure of Tarman, the player wanders through a multi-tiered dungeon, each level consisting of a 10x10 maze square and its surrounding hallway, making it a 12x12 square maze with the hallway included. The objective is to slay the Minotaur who guards the Treasure of Tarman and take his treasure chest. The game's catalog gives the following description of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Treasure of Tarman. Quote, You found the secret map to the underground lair of the dreaded Minotaur. You can go in, but you'll never come out unless you slay the Minotaur and claim his Tarman treasure. As you make your way through the hallways and chambers, monsters wield their conventional or spiritual weapons. You must gather the proper defenses along the way, but use them sparingly. The Minotaur looms closer. End quote. <laughs> that is such a great description of the game. It's almost perfect. Um, to continue, 
Uh, while the battles were turn-based, Advantage Dungeons & Dragons Treasure of Tarman is different from most games of its era as it involved a first-person view giving a three-dimensional feel. The player begins the game with the lowest level bow, a small supply of food, a number of arrows dependent on the selected difficulty level, and minimal spiritual and war health. Randomly placed throughout the maze are new weapons, armor, magical items, and treasure. The treasure in the maze, aside from the treasure of Tarman the Minotaur holds, can either boost the player's score, which is visible from the map screen, contain a potion, blue, pink, or purple in large and small varieties, or a bomb reducing the player's war or spiritual score. The bomb can cause a game over depending on the strength of the player at the time of the bomb trigger, and that's true. <laughs> there have been a couple of times where I've only gotten like two levels down into the dungeon and I open up a bag or a chest and it's got bomb in it and it was strong enough to kill my character. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this game. I mean, I love it, but man, it can be brutal. Okay, the types of threats. Uh, each enemy, aside from the Minotaur, can be found in three colors signifying different levels of difficulty. The skeletons are the weakest enemy in the game. They attack the player's war health and are very easy to defeat. Cloaked skeletons are more difficult to defeat. Both regular and cloaked skeletons may have shields, which increase their difficulty. They're giants. The other primary enemy to attack only the player's war health. These can have shields as well and are more difficult than skeletons. Giant ants. The weak of, weakest of the enemies who attack the player's spiritual health. Dwarfs, much like giants in their difficulty as well as attack. Giants come either with or without shields, but attack only the player's spiritual health. I think they meant to say dwarves do that, but okay, I'll let it slide. Uh, giant scorpions, mid-level enemies who attack the player's spiritual health. Uh, giant snakes, they also attack the player's spiritual health and have more health than giant scorpions. Alligators, the next more difficult in the spiritual attacking enemies. How this fits in with an underground maze beneath the castle is uncertain. Regardless, they do a great deal of damage. Yes, they do. Uh, dragons, the most difficult of the spiritual enemies. Uh, ghouls, these don't appear in the game until the player has gone several levels down. They may attack either the player's war or spiritual health during the battle. On the easier two game difficulties, its type of attack is determined randomly, but on the harder two difficulties, it attacks the weaker health, which is usually your spiritual health. Uh, let's see, wraiths. Uh, these are more difficult than ghouls and can either be shielded or normal. Deeper into the dungeon, wraiths can become harder to defeat than the minotaur itself. Yeah, that's true. I've had several runs into the dungeon come to an end because I ran up against a wraith. Uh, let's see. The minotaur. This is the end boss of the game, and it only appears in one color, which is purple. It attacks both your spiritual and your war health. Upon defeating the Minotaur, it will drop the treasure of Tarmin. The treasure can be picked up to end the game or ignored to continue playing. Additional Minotaurs show up on lower levels, and often even in the same level, and that's true. There, were, there was one game I was playing, I couldn't tell you where. I want to say it was a video connection, it might have been elsewhere, but... I think I picked the easy difficulty, which is only like three levels deep, and I defeated the Minotaur, he dropped the treasure, and I ignored it, found a ladder, and continued playing. I think I played that game for a good solid hour, if not longer. Uh, let's see, door monsters. These special creatures look like doors and hide the three spell books. Blue, which is the weakest, gives a book that teleports through walls. Pink gives a book that allows vision through walls. 
Purple tends to strike with high-end spirit weapons and gives a book that turns ordinary items to platinum, thus making any war weapon or treasure the highest value possible. And of course, bombs, which I have already explained. Some treasure chests and bags contain small or large bombs that explode to cause war damage. Let's see. Situations. To increase health, the player must either attack or be attacked by enemies, followed by resting, which consumes a food item. Uh, it has a chance to increase the war or spiritual health based on the weapons the player has used. With the aid of spirit or war tomes found in treasure chests, this chance may be increased greatly. The player's maximum health with the aid of maximum health limit increasing books and potions is 199 war points and 99 spiritual points. In the hallways, gates between adjacent mazes on the same level may be encountered. Passing through a green gate reduces the player's spiritual health and boosts the player's uh, war health. And the opposite effect occurs when passing through a blue gate. Use in conjunction with war or spiritual books and can boost your respective health significantly. Passing through a tan gate changes nothing. Uh, the player may keep going down levels by ac accessing a ladder inside each maze until level 256, after which the game cycles back to, to level 1 with the player character uh, retaining their inventory and health but attacking enemies at the first floor's easier difficulty. It is possible to be defeated but not lose the game. Upon dying, the player can be reincarnated to another section of that maze with all their packs inventory gone while retaining the contents of their weapon and shield slots, as well as their supplies of arrows and food. <laughs> yeah, I've had that happen a couple times. That doesn't happen until a few levels down, like level 4, level 5, and you've built up your spiritual and uh, war health. You know, and that way, yeah, you get defeated, but you don't... You, your game's not over, you just have to start over, which is kind of tough. Um, let's see. The Publication History, which is short and sweet. The game was written by Tom Lowry in nine, 1981 and was published by Mattel in 1983. I did not know it was written in 81. That's crazy. I thought it was just made in, like, 82. <laughs> How about that? Um... Treasure of Tarman was the second AD&D game for the Intellivision after Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Cloudy Mountain. A version was also released for the Mattel Aquarius home computer. In 1983, Mattel Electronics commissioned an Atari 2600 version of Treasure of Tarman. This was developed by Synth Corporation in Chicago. Two Synth software developers, Michael Bankston and Neil Reynolds, wrote the game to conform to the play of the Intellivision version. While the game was completed, it was not released before Mattel Electronics closed their doors. Which is a shame. It really is. And finally, the reception. Uh, German gaming magazine Telematch game, gave the game a very positive review, giving it a 1.5 out of 6. On their rating system, is 1 is the highest. Okay, that makes sense. Um, stating, quote, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is already the outstanding pinnacle of Intellivision cassettes, but Treasure of Tarman raises the bar even further, end quote, and, quote, at least for the German market, no other video game of this type exists. What happens next is almost unbelievable. You yourself are the adventurer, and you're not represented by a symbol of a small man on the screen. Rather, you see what one would see if one was walking." End quote. Telematch was also very impressed by the number of levels in the game, and felt that the awarding of points for defeating monsters was rewarding.
In a retrospective review of Treasure of Tarman in Blackgate, Ty Johnston said, quote, this is a game worth playing, loaded with thrills and fun, end quote. <laughs> I agree with that. Okay, um, my experiences with it. Um, I was seriously addicted to this game, like I've already said. I like Cloudy Mountain well enough, but this game was so close to the real AD&D dice and paper experience of the day, it was ridiculous. Uh, every time I went to the video connection in 1983, I would ask to play this game, much to the owner's wife's annoyance. I could easily spend hours playing it, always trying to gain better treasures, armor, weapons, and magic for my character. Always trying to delve deeper into the dungeon to confront the Minotaur and defeat him. When the department stores in the mall had this game on display, I was there playing it and playing it. <laughs> Which was true. I have a couple memories of Reed's department store having it on their uh, in television display, and I think I spent like two or three hours playing it. <laughs> I think G Fox had it on theirs at one point, and I did the same thing. Uh, let's see, to continue. Uh, when the Intellivision went away in the mid-80s, I had f kind of forgotten about the game, but by this time I was playing dice and paper games with my best friend and our crew of high schoolers, so I didn't miss the game too much. That was until I met my friend John in, I think, 1987 or 88. Uh, we met through a BBS and we would talk on the phone about games, movies, science fiction, you know, the typical nerd and geek stuff. Uh, I had a Commodore 64 and I had gotten a bunch of games from my friends and he said he had a bunch of stuff so we agreed to start trading um he lived two towns over and for over four years i would buy a bunch of blank floppies and load my commodore and disk drive in a carry-all bag load it on my back get on my bike and ride the six and a half miles to his place at least once a month the only thing that would stop me from doing it was if it was raining cold snow ice darkness huge hills traffic i didn't care uh, but one day while I was hanging out at his place, I was talking to him about Treasure of Tarman, and he told me he had an television and he had that game. I immediately asked to borrow it from him, and John, being the nice guy he was, he let me. Um, he pulled a pristine-looking Intellivision 2 out of his closet and gave me the game. I don't think I rode my bike back home that night. I think I flew. Uh, for the next three months, I played this game almost every day. After the second month, John started asking for a system back, and albeit reluctantly, I did give it back to him, but that's how deep my love for this game ran. I still play it in emulation because prices for the old school stuff have gone haywire, and I have to make sure that I don't have anything to do for the next several hours because I can still get sucked into that game. <laughs> and that's the truth. <laughs> that's Treasure of Tarman <laughs> and how I feel about it. <laughs> um, okay, out there, if you guys have played this game, you're D&D not like I was, and still am to some extent, and you thought this game was the greatest, or you thought it was terrible, whatever your thoughts are, let me know about it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, we're going to pivot right into Time for Some Strategy. strategy and treasure of tarman of course okay these are my own little tips tricks and thoughts about it so bear with me here okay 
Um, the trick to surviving the dungeon is to find food, weapons, and armor quickly and fighting monsters you can defeat. Familiarize yourself with the different monsters, their colors, and match them to the weapons that you have in your inventory. And be prepared to die. A lot. Uh, there are going to be encounters that you are not going to win in the beginning without finding the better weapons and spells first, and you just have to make your peace with that. It's just like playing <laughs> original D&D, you know, or advanced D&D in this case. You know, when you are low level, you have to really be careful about you run into because you can, you know, you can have your character killed very quickly, even by an impartial DM. But anyway, uh, try to find the uh, weapons and armor first and avoid combat when possible until you do. Explore carefully and search for secret doors regularly. Always eat food after a fight. You might get more war health or spiritual health after the fight, which is very important in the beginning. Equip armor, shields, and rings as soon as possible because the protection they offer can mean the difference between victory and defeat. Also compare the items you find to the items you have and swap out immediately if you find something better. Which e with each level you descend further into the dungeon, the treasures and magic become more powerful, but so do the monsters. This is my favorite in television game for sure. Once again, it's a combination of Dungeons and Dragons and video games, which were my chief obsessions in the 1980s. The programmers did a fantastic job simulating the D&D experience, and it's worth playing if you can find it. So that's Treasure of Tarmin in a nutshell. Alright, so with all that done, let's move right on to Arcade Review. Pinball Arcade, Fraser, Michigan. Okay, as with all my reviews, they are based off of five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, value. Um, location, is it easy to find? Is there plenty of parking? Things like that. Selection, how many games do they have? Do they have a good cross-section? Uh, things like that. Ambiance, is there other things to enhance the experience other than the games themselves? Is there music playing over the speakers? Uh, is there art or uh, neon signs or, you know, pictures to look at to, you know, give you a better immersive experience in that arcade? Uh, functionality. Do the games work? Do they work well? Do they look like Six Miles of Bad Road? Do they look pristine? Uh, things like that. And of course, value. Does the arcade run on quarters? Does it run on tokens? Does it is it a free play arcade? And is there other things in the arcade itself or close by it to add to the value, such as restaurants and you know selling soft drinks and snacks and things like that? So each one of these criteria is rated one to ten, with half points coming into play. You add them up, divide them by five, and you come up with a final score. So let's get right to it. Okay, location. I give it a six. 
Uh, Free Play is located on Utica Road up in Fraser, which is about an hour's drive from my house. Um, it's four miles northwest of Interstate 94 and about five miles north of Interstate 696. Uh, Utica Road is one of the major roads in that area, but it's a little bit of a drive for me, and I say that knowing that I've driven over an hour and a half, two hours in a couple of cases to scope out other places, never mind driving the four hours to Chicago. All things considered, it is tucked away a little bit, as far as I'm concerned, which is why it gets slightly above average marks. Uh, let's see, selection in eight... Uh, as the name suggests, pinball is the center of attention up here, but there are plenty of arcade games to provide a nice balance. There were classic pinball machines as well as the more up-to-date ones, which was nice. They had a baby Pac-Man, which was a nice touch, even, to, even though it didn't work 100% correctly. Uh, they also had a fully functioning Hercules pinball machine that I had not seen since I was literally 10 years old. As of March 16, 2022, they have 36 pinball machines and over 28 arcade games, which is not a bad selection, really. Uh, let's see, ambiance, 7.5. Uh, you know you're going to have some fun the, m the moment you get out of your car. They have a well-known and loved Detroit rock station playing on a PA outside the building, which of course is playing inside as well. The lighting is muted, but it works for the place as the monitors of the screens provide more of the lighting of the place. Uh, the staff is decent and uh, is decently helpful and friendly, which is also important. Uh, let's see. Functionality, I give it a 6. Uh, most of the games that I played worked decently, but several of them were in need of repair and maintenance, such as the Pac-Man machine and the baby Pac-Man as well. Uh, let's see. And value is an 8.5. Uh, the price for admittance was $20 at the time that I went, which was March 7th of 2021, but I cut the, pro the proprietor some slack because they had just reopened after being shut down due, the, due to the pandemic. Uh, the price for Thursday and Friday is $15 and $20 Saturday and Sunday with a nice four for three price point for families. Be they will be one adult and three kids or two, two adults and two kids. You pay for three and four get in. They also have a last call rate, which if you show up at the last hour of business, the admittance is $8 on Thursday and Friday and $10 Saturday and Sunday. That's pretty cool. Um, they also have a drink menu with beer and wine for the adults and sodas for the kids. At the time of this writing, which was September 11th of 21, uh, they were working on a kitchen for the place, and they do have a come-and-go policy, so if you want to go and get something to eat and come back, you can do so, and you can order food to be delivered there as well. The previously mentioned Hercules machine, as I found out, actually costs money to play, as it is a very rare machine, so I can let that slide. You add all that up, and you divide it by 5, and you come up with a total score of 7.2. Uh, while this, while it might be off the beaten path for me, its location serves at least 3 or 4 communities in the area, and the various bargains and decent price for free play does well for it. I had a decent time despite some of the machines not working correctly, although I wish I had known about the last call part at the time. I think I showed up like an hour and a half before closing. <laughs> Or something like that. Um, I wish I had also known about the situation with the Hercules machine, but it was getting late by the time I got around to it, and I had to get on the road because it was going to take me an hour to get home. Uh, overall, it's a good place to play games and to take the kids, 
and it's a very comparable experience to uh, the arcade in Brighton, which is where I work, and uh, that's where I was going to before then. Um, okay, so that's uh, free play, free play pinball arcade. Jeez, that's a mouthful. <laughs> um, if you guys are live in the Detroit area and you've been there and you have feelings about the place, be they positive or negative, hey, get a hold of me. I want to know. Arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. And lastly, in the short show, we're going to go on the road. Um, this recording was August 3rd, 2020. Um, it was, I think it was just one of those stream of consciousness kind of things that just hit me while I was driving around at my previous job. So let's all tune in and let's find out what I had to say because God only knows I've forgotten about it. It was almost two years ago now. So let's go. goes back to as far as I can remember probably when I was about three I mean there was a uh, a home video um, you know shot on what was it 8 millimeter film back in the day I mean we're talking like if I'm three years old it's 1972 so or at the very least late 1971 and I remember, I think I was three, okay, let's, just for, just for clarity's sake, let's make it somewhere between the ages of three and five. So we're saying anywhere between 1971 and 1974, you know, anywhere between there. But I remember there was a home video I wish I could find it, but they bought me a ride-on fire truck for Christmas. Yeah, you know, one of those early adopter, battery-operated ride-along toys that, you know, now kids nowadays, they get on one of those, they can do like 20 miles an hour. <laughs> because battery technology has grown by leaps and bounds since the early 70s. But I remember trying to get that thing to go and it wouldn't go. There's something wrong with the motor or something wrong with the battery. Something happened. But that, it goes all, it starts there. I mean, if you believe in astrology, you know, I'm a Sagittarius. Okay, born December. Um, one of the aspects of a Sagittarius is that they love to travel. They love to wander. They have wanderlust. I think there's like one or two signs that have it worse than Sagittarians, but you know, at the very least we're third on the list. And you know, I've alluded to this throughout the past 28 episodes to date. I mean, it's August 3rd. 
Um, probably going to record episode 29 uh, sometime this week. But, you know, you know I've, I've always wanted to see what was around me. Especially if I was bored. I mean, that goes all the way back to episode 2. Even episode 0, really. Where I was talking about how if I'm, like, bored out of my mind... And that's another aspect of Sagittarians. They tend to bore easily. So, if I was bored and I was somewhere where I wasn't home, I was always want to start wandering around just to see what there is to see. That's just been a part of my makeup since I was almost literally a baby or at the very least a toddler (laughs) from the time I could walk probably and even then I was probably crawling around everywhere and trying to get into stuff but um, so one of the things that inspired me to you know record this segment is that just going through my personal history, starting from when I was a kid all the way up to the present day, you know, yeah, I've always had the wanderlust in me, you know, now some years it's been stronger than others, but it's always been there, um, I mean, case in point, I mean, I've already half told the story, so I might as well just tell the whole story. Um, this was when we went down to, um, Virginia for a family reunion, and I think the reunion was actually in Petersburg, Virginia. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, full disclosure, that's where a lot of my, uh, part of my family is from. I mean, I've got family all over the United States, you know, the Midwest, West Coast, definitely the east coast where I was born and you know other places um so we went down to our family reunion and you know we're all you know everybody's having a good time and all this we go over my great grandmother's house and you know we're all hanging out in my great grandmother's house is as you would think being a woman born, oh my goodness, she was born in the, oh goodness, she was born in the 18, not the 18, Jesus Christ, what's wrong with me, the er, the late 1800s, I think, you know, because my grandfather was born, if I remember my math right, he was born right around the onset of World War One. so, you know, you would think, you know, little, you know, little town in the south, you know, actually, Petersburg's not a small town, it's actually a small city, but, you know, the house she lived in was modest, you know, as you would think, but she had a pretty sizable yard, and back in those days, that woman had so much energy, I mean, even as a a young child, you know, the fact that she could keep up with me and my brother and, you know, my cousins and all that, 
chasing us around the house and stuff like that. You know, it was remarkable. I mean, because even back then, she was in her 60s. And, you know, she's running us, she's running us ragged. <laughs> so, um, so, but one day we went over there. It was like after all of the um, family reunion festivities were done. I think it was a Sunday. As a matter of fact, I'm sure it was because I remember after the reunion was done and everybody who came in from out of town uh, went home. We stayed uh, for an extra few days before we went. We decided to, you know, pile in our cars and head back up to Connecticut. And so we're hanging out. I think it was a Sunday. And we're hanging out at my great-grandmother's house, and I'm bored. I mean, I've seen everything there is to see in her place. She actually had some toys. I remember she had a plastic um, World War II bomber. I think it was either a B-17. Yeah, I think it was a B-17. But it was plastic. And, you know, it had all of the uh, gun turrets and the propellers spun, you know, and it was fun, you know, just to mess with. So, um, but yeah, I played with that and, you know, I played with my brother and, you know, a couple of my cousins and stuff like that. And I'm bored. And there are a lot of people around there. So, of course, you know, they're not you know, the adults aren't keeping an eye on me. And that's not their fault, really. It's really not. But even at the time, I want to say I was like five years old, maybe six when this went down. Um, I already had the bug, so to speak. You know, the bug that years and years later has led me to record this show for you guys to listen to but I already had it had it for pinball machines already and I decided that I was going to go and go look for some pinball machines and so after sort of worming my way over to one side of the house where no one could see me I took off (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I climbed out, climbed uh, the fence, the fenced in her property, and I started walking. And I walked down a street, and I knew where downtown, quote-unquote, uh, Petersburg was. So, I just, I, I guess I sort of had a, a fairly decent sense of navigation, even as a child. So... I ended up, after about walking for, oh goodness, I'd say probably about 20 minutes, maybe 30, I find myself in downtown Petersburg. And now I just pulled in at a stop, so I need to pause it, so I shall return. Okay, I'm back. So, I ended up downtown, and I'm just walking around, seeing what there is to see, And sure enough, I actually found a place 
that have pinball machines. <laughs> oh. If I knew then what I know now, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I found a place with pinball machines. And I remember hanging out there for probably about an hour, maybe a little longer. And, you know, I had a couple of quarters and I actually played a couple pinball machines. And then that was that. So I hung out there for a little while. And you got to remember, this is Virginia in the dead of summer, like third week of July. And, you know, you know it gets hot as you know what down there. <laughs> you know, talking, you know, middle to upper 80s going into the 90s with the humidity. You know, yeah, summers in the South are no joke. Summers anywhere no joke nowadays, but especially down there. So then I'm just like, I don't feel like going back to my great grandmother's place yet. And I said, I'm just, I'm going to wander around and just see what else there is to see. And so I start walking and walking and walking and walking and walking some more. <laughs> oh man, it's just a wonder I didn't wind up dead in a ditch somewhere sometimes. But so now it's about, I want to say about six o'clock. I mean, it, it's still full daylight and it's, it's still hot. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure something out now because now I've got myself lost. I should have retraced my steps because if I had retraced my steps, I'd have wound up back at my great-grandmother's place inside of like 15, 20 minutes. But I didn't do that because, of course, as I said in a previous uh, On the Road segment, which you've probably heard by now, uh, it's, it was all about the adventure for me, even at five, six years old. So I keep walking. Six o'clock turns into seven, seven turns into eight. Now the sun is going down. Eight o'clock turns into about nine. Sun is fully down. It's full dark. And now the fact that I'm like a five or six year old kid starts to assert, its, assert itself. I'm tired, my feet are killing me, I'm hungry, I'm scared because I have no idea where I am. And, you know, at some point I'm just like, even at five, six years old, I'm like, screw it, I have to take a chance. I just can't keep walking because the way I'm going, obviously nothing is familiar, especially now that it's gotten dark. And so I just randomly just picked a house on the street that I was walking on. And I go up to the front door, I ring the doorbell, and this lady answers. And I say, I, and she's like, can I help you? And I said, hi, my name's Brian. I'm six years old. Um, my aunt's 
somehow I'm lost and can you help me? And she said, absolutely, come in. So I come into her house and she's like, okay. And she gives me a, if I remember this correctly, she gave me a piece of paper and a pen. And she said, okay, write everything down. You know, who, you know write, write down your name, write down um, where, you know, where you live and everything like that. And I'll call the police and they'll come and get you and they'll take you home. So that, so I write it all down and she gets on the phone and she immediately calls the police like she said she was. And after about, I want to say 15 minutes, police show up, you know, they take me, you know, the police officer takes me to, uh, takes me to his car, puts me in the back. (laughs) That, that has a whole different significance nowadays, but back then the policeman was on the up and up, you know, so he takes me back to my aunt's place. And as it turns out, I had walked clear across the county and halfway into another county. (laughs) And if you live in Virginia, you know, these counties, you know, these counties and townships are not small. They are not. I mean, I'm, I, I think these, I think I'm trying to remember it's the exact number, but I can't. I walked at least, at least 20 to 25 miles that day as a five-year-old kid, a five or six-year-old kid. And everybody, so I just remember, I knew I was in big trouble when uh, they pull up at my aunt's house. Now, now, by the time I get back there, it's after 10, somewhere between 10 and 11, you know, when the policeman, you know, pulls up to my aunt's house and takes me to the takes me to the door, you know, my aunt Marion, God, you know, God bless her. God knows I put that woman through a lot throughout the years of my life. But my aunt Marion answers the door and, you know, she profusely thanks the policeman for bringing me here, you know, bringing me here safe and sound. I mean, the only thing was is that, you know, I was, you know, sweaty you know, kind of dehydrated and starving because I literally hadn't eaten since we ate lunch at my great-grandmother's house close to nine or ten hours ago. So, um, yeah, my mom was relieved. She was furious, to be sure. (laughs) You know, but she was more relieved that I was home safe and sound. But these are the kind of stories that I have. I mean, I've already said it about going on different family reunions. Just because that happened to me, that didn't stop me from doing it over and over and over again (laughs) throughout my childhood. And going into my teen years, too. I mean... I mean, by the time I was like seven, eight, nine years old, you know, when I first discovered arcades, 
or when I discovered the arcade in my local mall, I should say, um, you know, my entire family told and retold and re-retold that story a million times in the two to three years since it happened. And my family profusely thanked the woman, and I cannot remember her name, and which is a shame because about, I want to say, oh what, my mom was still alive when that happened. I think it was like 2001 or 2002 when my mother called me, when I called my mom and we were talking, and she said, oh yeah, by the way, the, uh, the, um, the lady that you went to the house, you know, and she called the police to bring you back, she passed away, you know, like, you know, like two months ago, and I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, and I was like, wow, you know, and my family, I think, I won't say adopted her into our family, but they, they were, you know, certain members of my family and that person were close pretty much all the way till she passed away. And I mean, I'm doing her a massive disservice by forgetting her name. God only knows that she more or less saved my life that day. So like I said, I mean, by the time I'm like eight, nine years old, I mean, everybody knows that if they're going to, if an aunt or an uncle or my mother, you know, or any member of my family, my brother, um, if they're, if they are going somewhere and they don't want me to go anywhere, they knew they had to have somebody ride herd on me to make sure I didn't wander away. I mean, even going to places like, uh, Jimmy's Seafood in Fairfield, which was like our family's favorite place to go eat if you have like a, a family Sunday dinner. Um, even back then, you know, after I would order my food, because I knew it was going to take about 20 minutes, 25 minutes for my food to get there. So, I mean, this of course is like a couple years later, I'm like, you know, 11, 12 years old. And, you know, I'm neck deep in video games by this time and I knew that uh <coughs> excuse me Jimmy that Jimmy Seafood had a Pac-Man machine so I would or no it wasn't Pac-Man it was something else was it Amadar it might have been Amadar I think it had like two or three machines Amadar was one of them I think it might have been Pac-Man also but so after I would order my food, and I knew it was going to take a while to get there, I would just ask my mother for like, you know, a quarter, 50 cents, and I would go and play video games. Um, when I would go to, um, what, uh, what family reunions were like the main place for me to wander, because on a Saturday after we'll go to a park and do the big 
get together kind of thing and that sort of thing and we would all come back to the hotel to chill out and rest before we would all gather together in like a ballroom or a conference room and have our dinner before we would do all that we would you know I would just take off you know and I'll regale that stuff in a minute. I'm at another stop, so I need to pause again. I'll be back. Okay, I'm back. Um, so, yeah, as I got older, the pension to wander never really went away, ever. Um, my, like I said, in the, in the, Subsequent years, when we would go to family reunions, I would always go and explore. I wouldn't go too far. I did learn my lesson there. <laughs> but I wouldn't go too far away, say like a mile or two, just to see what was around. Because I'm in a new place, and God only knows when I'm going to come back to this place again, so I might as well see what there is to see, right? So... I mean, I remember, oh, what year was it? Oh, goodness, let's see. I think, was it 85? No, it wasn't 85. No, no, it wasn't 85. Um, trying to remember when, well, it was when Star Trek 3 came out. Yeah, Star Trek 3. Star Trek 3 came out, I think, what, 1984? So that had to be the year. Um, I think we went to somewhere... It was either in... I think it was Maryland. And... I just decided that... Yeah. You know, of course I'm gonna check... You know, see what there is to see. I actually did it when we actually got into town that night. I mean, at this point, 1984, summertime. I'm 15 years old. So... You know, and of course, up to my eyeballs in an arcade addiction, of course. So that was what I was looking for. I mean, I had a few dollars, you know, my mother gave me some money so that, you know, if we hit a rest stop, you know, I could go get something to eat or something to drink. Although we would pack our cars or if we were lucky enough that my uncle had you know, would, uh, my uncle would, um, drive us in his RV. That was fun. <laughs> I remember he did that a year or two and that was kind of fun. Um, but I do remember we got into town that night. It might've been Youngstown, Ohio. Now that I think about it, it might've been, but as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that's what it was because I remember my stepfather drove us in his car and I remember it took, it seemed like it took us forever to get through Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh man. I mean, from the eastern end of Pennsylvania to western end of Pennsylvania was, I think it's literally 300 miles to go right across the state. And I just thought it just took forever. I remember we were driving down Interstate 80, you know, heading west out towards Ohio. And I do remember that 
Um, I think it was me, my mother, is me, my mom, my brother, and my stepfather. I think it was the four of us. And we went down, you know, so we, we drove all the way through. And I remember my mother and my stepfather were making jokes because there is, when you drive past uh, a certain part in Pennsylvania, there's an exit for Mount Airy Lodge. You know, there's like a highway that takes you north that takes you up to, you know, up to the, up to that place. And of course, anyone who was born and raised in the Northeast, you, if you watch TV for any sort of period of time, they would have ads for the Mount Airy Lodge. And that was a place where married couples would go, you know, to have, you know, a weekend to themselves or whatever. You know, they advertised it for lovers, you know, and for married couples and things like that. So, you know, my mother and my my stepfather were making all kinds of jokes about that. And, you know, and we would just boogie on down the road. So I remember we got into we got into town about 10 o'clock that night and we got checked into the hotel. And once we got our stuff from the car into um, into our hotel room, I took off. You know, I just told my mother, I'm going to, I'm going for a walk. That's what I would tell her. And she's like, you better be back here in X amount of time. I forgot. Well, it was late already and we were probably tired. So I just said, yeah, I'm just going to walk around just to see what there's to see. I'll be back. Don't worry. And that's what I did. And I discovered like about a mile up the street from the hotel, they had a shopping mall. And of course, by this time, mall's closed, but you know, I scouted it out and I'm like, okay, after we get done with festivities tomorrow, I'm going, I'm going here after we get back. And sure enough, after we get done with the festivities, you know, I take off, I go to the mall, I'm like, I've already, you know, hugged and kissed all of the aunts and uncles that wanted to hug and kiss me, blah, 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 blah. You know, the typical family obligations, that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, it's fine hanging out with family members you haven't seen in a year or two for about, say, half an hour before, you know, this is just how my brain worked. That's, this is just how it was. You know, I would get bored and I would just be like, yeah, okay. And then, you know, that would be that. So I just said, I'm not going to go to the dinner tonight. You know, I'll, I've got some money on me. I'll get something to eat at the mall and I'm going to go see, I'm going to go see a movie. It's about that. And that's when I found out that Star Trek three was playing. And I'm just like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, the only thing was that, yeah, I didn't find an arcade. That's, that's the unfortunate part. But I also knew not to wander too far. You know, you know, here I am, I'm a black kid in a strange town. I'm not going to even tempt fate any more than I already am by just taking a walk somewhere. So I just went 
and I saw Star Trek 3 and I just remember you know just that whole intro scene where they're replaying Spock's death from Star Trek 2 and I started crying <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it I was crying because even though I was I didn't cry I was sad because here's one of my all-time favorite TV characters top oh goodness top three top three TV characters of all time out of all the TV shows I used to watch when I was a kid and here he is he's dying and I remember watching Star Trek 2 and I was sad but I didn't cry and that was two years ago <laughs> oh my goodness and then I see that and I think it was just that I think they played it, played up his death and his funeral so much that, yeah, I got caught up. <laughs> I got got, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, that's what I did. So, but this is how, this is what I used to do as a kid. And, of course, that's what led me, this kind of spirit led me to go to, um... Oh, goodness. Vancouver in 1989, you know, on the pretext of being in love with someone. And that didn't work out, although I got a, a halfway decent consolation prize that I got to explore a city that was absolutely gorgeous. And the people were friendly, which was something I wasn't used to. <laughs> Come on, I was born and raised in the tri-state area, in you know, in the New York metropolitan area. Come on. Um, people were nice. People were friendly. The city and its surrounding suburbs were absolutely gorgeous. And not to mention downtown Vancouver had two arcades and they both were great. Um, that led me to you know, uh, go to various get-togethers, uh, online get-togethers in New Jersey. You know, that's where I met my first girlfriend. Um, and we, you know, and that's where I met my first girlfriend and I would go to subsequent ones in New Jersey, even though I more or less wore my welcome out one night at a party by having a little too much to drink and saying some stupid stuff and you know and that led to people sort of making me persona non grata but whatever you know yeah I did so I didn't said some stupid things and I shouldn't have done done and said them so yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's that's a that's a regret I have okay I just pulled in at work so I'm going to get my car loaded and then I'm going to get my work day started. I'll be back. Okay, I'm back. So, like I said, that was part of the, when it came to the get-togethers and stuff like that, it wasn't so much the people, although I loved hanging out with you know, certain people and, you know, making friends and having fun and that kind of stuff. But the thing that really attracted me to doing that kind of thing was just the idea of 
jumping in a car with a friend of mine and driving down to New Jersey, you know? Or getting on the uh, Metro North train and going to New York City and walking from Grand Central Station to Penn Station, getting on a PATH train and getting down to New Jersey like that. Or in... <clears throat> Or even taking a uh, Amtrak down to Penn Station and going from there. I mean, it's just the just the journey. I mean, when I went to go see my girlfriend when she was going to college on Long Island, um, just getting on the ferry from Bridgeport to Port Jefferson, and you know, getting on the ferry and just. Uh, going and just going uh, across Long Island Sound I mean when I listen to certain songs like they're um, like listening to Rush's um, you know moving pictures album I remember you know it's like what summer of no not summer fall of 1990 early fall or early fall 1989 and you know, getting on the ferry to go see my girlfriend, and, you know, I actually, the thing I remember is the journey home, because I remember I was on the upper deck, and, you know, the ferry's making its way from Port Jefferson to Bridgeport, and just being out on the sound, and the wind, you know, the, the, the smell of the ocean, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and I had my headset on, and I'm listening to Rush's moving pictures, that's a memory that's been etched in my brain ever since it happened. So that's, what, 31 years ago? <laughs> but, yeah, that's kind of how it is. You know, it's not only just the things that are going on when you get to the place, it's the journey to get to the place, you know, we're getting to the place, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, I'm at a stop, so I'm going to pause it here. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. So, anyway, I mean, there was always, I always had wanderlust as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult. I mean, as an adult now, I mean... When I think about it, I mean, aside from it probably being in my nature, one of my favorite things that used to that I used to do when I was a kid was some days my aunt would come over and say, you know, let's go for a ride. Now, that probably was happening to kind of get me out of my mother's hair for a little while, but I didn't care because... I loved going places with my aunt because she would take me pretty much everywhere. Everywhere she went, you know, if either if I asked her to take me with her or if it was just more or less babysitting because that's kind of what it was, um, she would take me, you know, and she would take me to like, um, I remember when I did my uh, rundown for Spanky's and I was describing where Spanky's was and there was uh, a little ice cream place on Lindley Street 
you know, right up the way from where Spanky's would be. You know, that's where my aunt used to take me. She, she would take me to McDonald's sometimes. You know, she would take me out to this wonderful little hamburger place called The Cricket out in Stratford. You know, if she had business out there. Um, and it just, it's just the fact that I was just going somewhere. And it's kind of funny now because I see it in my son. You know, that he likes it when I take him places. You know, it's kind of, it's not funny, but it just makes me chuckle a little bit because I see so much of myself in him, you know, that it's just, it's a trip. It really is. It's, it's, it's a head trip for sure. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I loved it when my aunt used to take me places and, you know, take me for a ride just to go somewhere. You know, if she had some errands to run, she'd take me along with her. You know, I really appreciated that. You know, one of these days, if the two of us are ever, you know, ever can get together and talk, I'll, I'll tell her, I'll thank her for that. Um, but, um, just, and it wasn't just going, you know, me going out of the house and going to the mall. That, that ties into the, the story, not the story time, the on the road segment I have about having adventures because, you know, that was what it was, but it wasn't even just the adventures I would have at a certain place. It was getting to that place that I liked as well. You know, on those days when I would be hanging out at the mall arcade all day and Mark walks in and, you know, Mark starts playing games. And of course I'm watching him play because he, I was trying basically to pick up tips for this game or that game and try to get better at it. And, you know, so you know, after a while, I mean, Mark and I became friends to the point where, you know, we'd be hanging out at, you know, hanging out in the arcade, he's playing games and I'm watching him or we're playing doubles, you know, and stuff like that. Or, you know, he's giving me tips on this game or that game, you know, and I would just ask him straight out if he was going to Milford Rec that night. And if he said, yeah, you know, I would ask if I could go along with him. And you know, he, you know, he'd think about it for a second and he'd be like, sure, yeah, come along. And so there are some, you know, most of the time, you know, I'd say probably about 75, 25, most of the time, you know, after we were done at that arcade, you know, we would just, uh, get, you know, we would just get in his car and we would just go, you know, either he would go to like, you know, Bolarama to pick up his paycheck or, when he was working for Orkin way back in the day. Um, he would pick up his paycheck from there or whatever. Um, or he would just go over uh, a friend's house and pick him up and then, you know, the three of us would go to Milford Rec. Or, you know, every so often he'd, you know, want to go back home or, you know, either, you know, grab a shower or, you know, whatever and I would just tag along with him. You know, and I would, you know, I would just play games on his Commodore 64 or I would uh, uh, mess around on D-Dial. 
<laughs> yeah, those, you know, way back in those days, that was like, what, 83, 84, 85, right in there, um, until I got my own Commodore in 1987, uh, but then we would get in his car after that, and then we would just go up the Merritt Parkway and, you know, duck down. I forget how he would do it. There's a, there's a road that you would go down. I think it was going down like Main Street in Stratford. And then, uh, he would just come down to I-95 and then we'd go over to exit, I think exit 37 on, uh, the turnpike. And that's where he would get off to go to Milford Rack. And half the time we would go to like, uh, Connecticut Bulls Mall Arcade, you know, play some games there and then be, then just, you know, journey on up to, uh, Milford Rack. I think one time we did the Connecticut Post Mall Arcade, Milford Rec, Gompers Run, you know, where we went to all three of them, you know, and, but, you know, it wasn't just going to the arcades themselves, it was, you know, just being in the car and, you know, just, you know, on our way somewhere. I always loved that, no matter whose car I was in, most for the most part, it didn't matter. You know, I always liked the journey as much as what was going on at the destination. So, you know, and that is, of course, translated into my chosen vocation, you know, working. I mean, I'm a professional driver. You know, I, my first driving job was at, was Airborne Express at, in Orlando. That was the first, like, serious money I ever made. And, you know, there's a choice that I made there that I regret that I won't go into because it has nothing to do with what, you know, what I'm talking about. But I enjoyed, you know, driving from the warehouse to my area, making the deliveries, you know, getting to know the people that were regular customers, that sort of thing. God, I remember I had a crush on the receptionist at the Volkswagen dealership. My God, she was absolutely, she will. What, people, when I tell you she was more or less a goddess, she was. Because she was that beautiful, she was that nice, you know, and she was just, she was really, she was really nice to talk to as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, I had a crush on her. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, you know, and I enjoyed that process, you know, and of course I enjoyed, you know, working, uh, the occasional Saturday where I would get, you know, where I'm working for, you know, some extra money. I would just like drive up to, um, you know, one of my stops in the, in my area was the, um, training facility where the uh, Orlando Magic uh, trained. And I saw a couple of players, you know, I saw like Matt Harpering when he first got into the league. Um, he was, you know, he was recovering. I think he had like a knee issue and he was, you know, doing rehab there. And I actually stood there. It was kind of interesting because the way the the way the facility was set up, you would, um, 
you would be walking on the upper level, but then there would be like this, you know, this like, you know, opening, I forget what they call it, but you're on this walkway on the upper level as you're, you know, as I'm going to where I would pick up the packages from the, you know, from, I think it was a doctor's office. And so uh, as you're walking towards the doctor's office, you would look down and of course there's a basketball court down there. I think it's like multiple courts. I think it was like three courts. But one time I'm going down there and Matt Harbring is down there with his trainer, you know, and he's doing getting a rehab stint in. That was kind of cool, you know. Uh, another time, um, unfortunately, he wasn't a magic player anymore. He was playing in Sacramento, I believe, but I think he was still living in Florida. Um, one of my other customers was a Ferrari dealership. And um, Nick Anderson walked in there one day. And, you know, I just walked up to him and said, hey, Nick, what's up? You know, how are you doing? And he's like, yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. And I'm like, cool, cool. I mean, he was a really popular player in Orlando uh, until he bricked those free throws in the NBA Finals against the Houston Rockets. I think that was when uh, the fan base turned on him, you know, which was unfortunate because that was like the first time the Magic were in the Finals. That was when they had Penny and Shaq and Dennis Scott and Anthony Bowie and Donald Royal and Nick Anderson. They had a really good team. You know, they were really cool to watch. Um, but yeah, it was like right after that. I think he was with Orlando for like another like a year or two. And then, you know, uh, he got traded to uh, Sacramento. I think that whole team broke up because, of course, in the, I think it was, what, 97, 98, that's when Shaq forced his way out of Orlando to go to the Lakers. Um, and that's when that team started breaking up. Unfortunately, you know, Penny, Penny got injured, and that was kind of pretty much the end of his career, even though he would be in the league for another four or five years, but he was never the same player because he was supposed to be like the next Magic Johnson because he had, he was really tall at six foot seven. He was athletic. He could pass. He was developing into a pretty decent shooter. And, you know, the, the, you know, the sky was the limit for him until he got hurt. And that's unfortunate because he was a superstar. If he wasn't a superstar, he was literally a half step away from being one. I mean, he had his own shoe. He had those Nike commercials with little with little Penny, you know, voiced by uh, Chris Rock. You know, all that stuff. He had all that stuff. He had it going on for sure. It was just a shame that he got injured and he was never the same player afterwards. All right. So anyway, I'm at another stop. So pause. Okay, I'm back. So, I mean, that was the first driving job that I had. And it just kind of did it for me. You know, I didn't realize it at the time because, you know, full disclosure, I didn't get my driver's license until I was like 27. It was, I could go into the whys and wherefores, but there's no need. Let's just say, let's just put it this way. I was a bit of a spaz until I got into my 
middle to late 20s and I started to figure stuff out. Let's just put it that way. Um, so that was my first driving job. Um, my second one was with Iron Mountain, which is a document storage and, and destruction company. Um, and that's the one where I had a route that would take me uh, down to Kissimmee and oh, no, I'm not going that way. Screw that. Sorry, I was looking for a drive through to get lunch and there's too much of a backup there so I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Anyway, um, and that took me around Orlando and down into Kissimmee and over into Celebration you know, which, which is where a lot of Disney employees live in, you know, uh, how, you know, in housing, um, and up into Disney property itself to where I would actually be pulling in behind the Magic Kingdom. And that's where a lot of people, a lot of the, uh, cast members were, uh, coming on and off shift one of my favorite things to do is to watch the princesses, you know, you know, come in and out, you know, every now and then I would see like, you know, um, little people, uh, in the Mickey and Minnie Mouse, uh, half costumes, you know, things like that. But yeah, the, the women that were, uh, the, the princess characters, oh my God, some of the most beautiful women on the face of the earth, seriously. And I was told by somebody, I can't remember who told me, but um, that was when Disney was going out. You know, they were hiring people that at least had the proper look for each of the characters. You know, so if they were looking for a Princess Jasmine, they looked for someone with Middle Eastern um, uh, ethnicity. And, you know, so you were seeing Jasmine and Ariel and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. Like I said, some of the most beautiful women on the face of the planet were Disney employees. Um, and you can only just imagine what those people go through <laughs> during a work shift, you know. And, of course, the fabled Disney Underground that does exist where it's, I mean, there's been a document, a document, uh, a documentary on, um, I think the history channel where they actually explored the underground, you know, under the magic kingdom. And basically it's this huge, um, underground tunnel that goes pretty much all the way underneath that. So that cast members can, you know, sort of appear and disappear without uh, without the patrons of the place knowing it was kind of cool so that was another job that I really liked um but yeah I like these jobs because I got to drive around and I got to be out outside and I got to you know just see the scenery change I've never been with the exception of a couple of jobs I've never been happy working in an office with a couple of exceptions, you know, um, but anyway, so then when I got up to Michigan, my first driving job was, uh, being a test driver, um, 
I was hired on through a uh, temp agency and I was work. that was the first time I worked for Roush. And basically we would go to the, um, the Ford plant in, um, oh God, in Westland. Yeah, yeah, it was Westland. It was Canton slash Westlands, right in there, right on um, Michigan Avenue. And yeah, it's like, yeah, Wayne, yeah, it's the Wayne plant. Yeah, it's like right there, right on the border of uh, Westland, Canton, and Wayne, right in there. And we would go there and we would check in and we would just get vehicles and we would drive them and, you know, put miles on them. You know, and that was the first drive, that was the first test driving job I had. Then I was a driver with an electrical supply company for five years. I was a regular driver to start, and then I got the inventory transfer run. You know, and that was basically uh, transferring inventory between the three warehouses they had. They had one in Ann Arbor, which is the one I got hired at. Then they had one in Madison Heights, that's the headquarters. Then they had another one up in Flint. So, you know, so yeah, I would just go back and forth that way. Uh, you know, and it would be, you know, like an eight hour, eight and a half hour shift. And, you know, it was the same thing, but, you know, at the same time, you know, I'm driving. And, I'm, and when I'm driving, I'm happy. That's just how it is. Um... Then after that, I got uh, a job with Roush Proper, and that one was fun because, you know, every now and then you would, you know, one of the um, managers would come up to you and say, or come up to us while we're, you know, in our little um, gathering area and we're waiting for our shifts to start, and one of them would come in and say, I got a car that needs to go down to Fort Myers, who's in? Or I have a car that needs to go up to Bemidji, Minnesota. Who's in? Or one to go to Vegas. I've done all three of those routes and every last one of them, with the exception of one, was just so much fun. You know, you got in a car, they gave you a per diem for hotels and for meals, and you had, I think, well, I think in the case of Bemidji, you had two days to get up there. In the case of Vegas, you had, in case of Vegas and Florida, you had three days. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that. I mean, some of the cars I drove were pieces of crap. You know, some of them were uh, pre-production vehicles, so they weren't, you know, 100%. Although they got they got me to where I needed to go, and then. If they didn't have a vehicle to take back, they would fly you home. So it worked out. Um, one time, there was a time where I had a vehicle I had to take to Denver. And so I get out there, or I take that back. There was one I had to take to, um, to Vegas. That's right, it was Vegas. So I drove the thing down to Vegas. That took me three days or two and a half days, whatever. You know, I would stop in Iowa, uh, then I would drive down to um, just uh, to Grand Junction, Colorado, stay there, then I would drive to Vegas from there. Um, but then they had a vehicle they had to have taken back, so, so basically I was on the road for six days, 
you know, I would, you know, basically I drove to Denver or drove to Vegas, picked it up. Then I drove to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Then where did I stop the second time? Oh my good. Oh, that's right. I stopped in Missouri. That's right. <laughs> in my girlfriend's hometown, actually, which was kind of funny. Um, and then I drove to Indianapolis and stopped there. And then I drove back from there. So that was fun. That, I loved that one. Even though my girlfriend didn't like it because I wasn't home for six days, but whatever. <laughs> you know, it was my career at the time. All right, speaking of careers, I'm at a stop, so I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Let me take my mask off. So, that was a lot of fun. The job didn't pay very much, and that was the only reason, aside from the fact that I was in a bit of a bind, because they were uh, in negotiations to renew their contract with one of the auto manufacturers, and until that is done and finalized, uh, nobody who's a test driver can work. So I was out of work for like three weeks and I, ha I needed a job. <laughs> I couldn't mess around with this anymore. I mean, as much as I liked the job and most of the people I work with, you know, yeah, that three, I couldn't be out of a job for three weeks. So, yeah, so I ended up taking a position and working for Hyundai, doing the same thing, test driving. I mean, they didn't have the trips, you know, where you would go and take a vehicle to this facility or that facility. Actually, they started getting those towards the end of my tenure there. I was with them for, what, almost five years. You know, I work with work for Hyundai, and you know, for the most part, it was a decent job. You know, there were some things about it I didn't like, but the whole thing was is that I liked just being out on the road. You know, that's just that's my jam nowadays. You know, I like being on the road. You know, if I'm going to be working, that's the kind of job I want because it. Um, it's a job that I'm good at. <laughs> you know, I would go slowly stir crazy being in an office in a cubicle somewhere. I mean, there was a time where I did that job. It didn't last very long because, yeah, it drove me crazy. Um, but, you know, I'm a wanderer. And that's just how it is. And as long as I'm going somewhere, you know it's okay. I mean, I mean, right now I work for a medical, uh, laboratory as a courier and I'm driving around. I'm doing it right now as we speak, as I'm talking to you guys, you know, I'm driving around, I'm going from stop to stop and doing, picking up and delivering supplies, that kind of stuff. And, you know, driving, I guess, soothes, soothes my soul in some ways. I was just thinking about it when um, I was watching the Rush documentary Beyond the Light Stage, and for those who, even if you're not a Rush fan, you should watch this documentary. It's really, really good. But they're at the part where 
the drummer of Rush, Neil Peart, rest in peace, Neil. You know, we lost him, what, last year? Yeah, last year. And uh, he went through a tragedy that would break 80 to 90% of us, maybe 95% of us, because he comes off tour and he's, you know, reconnecting with his family and that kind of stuff, and his daughter dies in a car accident. That's hor- That's a horrific tragedy in and of itself. So, you know, he and his wife, they just sort of tr- just kind of go away to try and deal with it. And then shortly after that, his wife gets sick and dies and does and just deteriorates quickly and just dies. And and Neil just in order to try and try and process what's what's happened to him and not only that to try and just on some levels to try and deal with it he takes off he basically gets on this uh bmw touring bike and he just goes and goes and goes and goes i think he rode like how many miles i think it was like eleven thousand miles or something like that he basically drives across Canada, drives down through the United States, drives into Mexico, you know, this this just crazy trip. He wrote a book about it called uh, Ghost Rider, and I recommend that, but just be warned, it's really, really heavy. Because, I mean, he is, re- he is retelling everything that's going through his mind, you know, and, you know, just... I can't even just fathom it. It would be like if, God forbid, I lost my son and then I lost my girlfriend right on top of that. I mean, how do you come back from that? I mean, I read that book. I have that book. I read it once. I can't read it again. It's it's just way too heartrending. You know, it's just really, really tough to get through because you're going on this emotional journey with him and it's it's a doozy i mean it's it's just it's oh my god it's so just so rough but my whole thing is is that that's how he kind of got himself sort of back on you know back on track but it took him years and thousands of miles and you know to be able to get back to kind of who he was and it sort and it 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 turns out okay in the end because he finds his second wife and you know he's able to get you know to he gets a second chance so to speak and he goes through something that would have broken most of us, you know, because, you know, it's like, it just amazes me just how hard of a time he had during that whole thing. And, of course, you know, Rush makes its, makes its triumphant return in 2003, 
you know, they come out with a new album and they get back on the horse and they go on and they go on from there until 2015 when they hang it up for good and then Neil passes away in 2019 you know which was terrible but anyway all right I'm at another stop so I'll be right back okay I'm back so anyway you know I find there there are a few things that I find solace in I mean true solace um two of them are driving slash exploring you know you know or even just getting you know, just even just getting in the car and just going somewhere going for a ride you know th- that or arcades which is the reason why I started this podcast in the first place aside from the fact that you know listening to Vic Sage and the Retroist was conjuring or digging up all of these arcade memories that I had and they were every time I would listen to them it would you know my brain would just be unearthing all of these memories that I have of games you know friends that I've made enemies that I've made <laughs> um good times, bad times, embarrassing times, um, and that's when I was like, I need to get these out, because every time I listen to an episode, I start dwelling on this stuff, (laughs) I mean, to the point where I started making, like, these recordings, and I have them, and you'll never hear them, they're just a little too embarrassing, folks. Otherwise, I would post them. Um, but I used to have to make recordings talking about a video game and my memories of it and my experiences with it. And I'm, after a while, I'm just like, why am I doing this? I should be doing a podcast myself. It's not like I don't know how to do one. I mean, I've been, full disclosure, I've been podcasting for 10 years with three other people and you know now we get now we only do it like semi-regularly um so um yeah so it's not like I don't know how to run a podcast and I've got way too much information for it to just be tucked away in filing cabinets inside my brain so that's why I decided to make this podcast, and once again, I'm glad and grateful that you guys are taking the ride along with me. Okay, so I think I'm going to call it here. I've been rambling about this topic for the better part of an hour, and I'm starting to get hungry, and when I get hungry, my, I get, my brain starts to not work so great, so for to save myself some embarrassment, I think I'll call it here. So anyway, this is Brian saying, have fun out there, good gaming, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com.
You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict Podcast. See you then.